I, like many Canadians, were shocked to see Nazi flags, Confederate flags, dismayed and angry and hurt, horribly hurt. So how many Nazi flags does it take? How many donors from the Capitol riots, it's 1,100 and counting, who have donated to these illegal blockades? How many guns need to be seized? How much vitriol do we have to see of Hong Kong, which is an acronym for Hail Hitler, do we need to see by these protesters on social media? back another episode of our interesting times it is my pleasure to have dr e michael jones back on the show well um dr jones returns uh to discuss um well a number of issues um but first um well actually dr jones is the uh, of course the editor of culture wars magazine culturewars.com um the author of uh, many books uh the jewish revolutionary spirit and its impact on world history i think we'll talk a little a little bit about that tonight of course more recently in logos rising a history of ultimate reality and i'm holding in my hands here brand new i've read the introduction already the dangers of beauty the conflict between mimesis and concupiscence in the fine arts by dr e michael jones I just arrived a couple of days ago it's a fine book it's a little different uh different proportions just because it's um it almost it's almost like a coffee table book isn't it but it's uh, a lot of pictures so it's appropriate Congratulations, yeah. by the way. And it's fun. Thank you. Federal, Thank fun, you. Fun, and it's released finally. Yes, uh, we finally got the printer to uh, deliver the book, so we're happy. Uh, and it is a coffee table book, and it is full of pictures because uh, that's what the at least the first part is all about art mm -hmm. in the in Italy uh, during the time of the Renaissance and a little bit after that. Uh, so, yeah, it's full of pictures. It's glossy pages. Yeah, it's the first book we've done like this. And apparently it was difficult to print because they ruined one editions or one oh, run, okay. yes, which color. delayed us. Yeah, a lot of color in it. Right, right. Uh, yes. Which is probably why it, it the well, it justifies the price, I guess. But um, I think you told a story long ago. One, I think it was Slaughter of Cities. 
uh, you know, I think at the time hardcover was like 45 bucks. You're, these books are always kind of pricey, but they're usually like a thousand pages. So you, you know, you get what you pay for in a way, but, um, and you're in a bar, I think in Philadelphia and you're talking to some I think, ethnic pole there or something. <laughs> no, Irish don't defame the poles here. Okay. It was the he, Irish. He, okay. he was Irish. It was Grace Furry. I was yeah. sitting in a bar at Grace Furry. And you uh, uh, buy this book, and he told him the price. Go ahead, let you say it. You, you tell it was actually the book was uh, John Cardinal Kroll and the Cultural Revolution. Okay, it's a little older then. Okay, <clears throat> yeah, this was a while back, and explained to this guy why he was being driven out of his own neighborhood, uh -huh. why why he was being ethnically cleansed, uh, and it what didn't cost that much. I think it was twenty dollars or something okay. like that. So he said, how much does it cost? I said, $20. He says, nah, it's too expensive. And then he placed a $50 bet on the Phillies game. Or something. <laughs> the Eagles or something. Some team, yeah. Something like that. It's always, they're, they're always, the bars are always full and they're always watching some sports event. And they're never going to learn about uh, why they're being driven out of their own neighborhood because they won't buy the book. Yeah. And then they won't read it if they did buy it because <laughs> they're too busy watching football or hanging out at the bar. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, congratulations. Dangers of Beauty, the conflict between mimesis and concupiscence in the fine arts. Uh, I'm already enjoying it. Although uh, I'm still reading Logos Rising because the past – I think Logos Rising came out a couple of years ago. Then all of a sudden all the COVID stuff hit and – I've been all this the fast pace of events that kept me from like sit back and actually contemplating reading historical books and this stuff. That's one thing that I don't like about current events is they're moving so fast that it's, uh, that it's actually distra distracting, which is probably part of the agenda. Actually, that is part of the agenda. They have to keep you constantly distracted. So there's always a new crisis mm -hmm. every 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 week. There's a new crisis, and then when that when that crisis gets old or when it doesn't go the way they want. Like the Ukraine crisis, for example, it just disappears and is replaced by another one. Which is why it's important to understand history because <clears throat> you kind of get a, uh, an understanding. You recognize patterns and nothing is new under the sun, so to speak. And you know, and one of the benefits of getting older is that you, you have a me memory and you can see these <laughs> things, right? I mean, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's like for, me, at least till your memory goes. Yeah. 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 But, yeah. but you're right. You have to have some type of distance from these events and the whole point of this uh 24 7 information barrage is to keep you from getting that distance so that's the problem and the other the other issue is there's there's information in books that you will not find anyplace else mm -hmm. uh you have to go to books if you want some type of in-depth analysis of things you can't find it on the internet you can find uh, out about the book on the internet, but you can't, you know, read the book on the, or the or internet is a different, different experience. Yeah. So the problem is that you got people who are spending all their time on the internet or talking, you know, like every day, three hours a day or something like that, talking, 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 and they never have time to do research. And so they never got distance. And so they never get uh, a deep enough perspective on what's going on. Yes, I'm glad that when I was in my 20s, uh, everything I, I was saying wasn't being recorded. Right. They, <laughs> they used to say, they used to criticize Andrew Gooley as a man who never had an unpublished thought. Uh, now with internet, nothing's published, but it's an unspoken thought. You know, mm -hmm. you're constantly uh, shooting off your mouth about things uh, as soon as they happen. I, be, I mean, in a sense, I'm swept up into the same stream as everyone else. I just uh, I did just did an article today on the 
the uh, stabbing of uh, Salman Rushdie. Uh, we're all swept up. We have to deal with the world as it exists, you know, and try to take some type of distance so you have some understanding of what's going on so you don't get suckered into one more scam, one more psyop, one more whatever it is. Yes, and tonight I wanted to bring you on to talk about well, well a historical issue and event, if you will, the sort of the uh, the, the um, early uh, life of of, of uh, Benedict XVI, uh, Ratz Joseph Ratzinger. Right. And you you did a, a review uh, uh, of his biography uh, on that, and it, it, a lot. Of, and also want to want to talk about in the context of narrative. This narrative is very important because narrative shapes how we view history and of course how we shape contemporary our current times and and uh that a certain narrative played a very big part in, in the development of cardinal ratzinger and also the direction of the catholic church um we also just had a recent uh, this recent spectacle of the pope coming here to apologize uh catholics and christians in general always are always apologizing constantly apologizing yeah um, even if even if it didn't happen, he's going to apologize. Even if it doesn't happen, and there's thirty-one billion dollars to prove that it indeed did happen, but a lot of money can, you know, a lot of money can shape a narrative. And it's funny how you get victims when you offer out thirty-one billion dollars in compensation <laughs> for said crime. Uh, but we'll talk about that. But before we get into that, you know, just last week we had this FBI raid on August eighth uh, uh, on Mar-a-Lago, uh, Donald Trump's home in Florida. Merrick Garland said it was a, a narrowly scoped uh, a warrant. Why? <laughs> if he says it, I guess it's true. I guess he, it must be true if he said it. <laughs> there, there are nine hours going through Melania's wardrobe. So, apparently, yeah. uh, apparently, you know, a lot of leaks, nuclear, ultra nuclear secrets. We had Michael Beschloss, the renowned court historian, um, who says a lot of nice things about the regime all the time. Uh, suggesting that Donald Trump could be executed like the Rosenbergs for <laughs> letting loose nuclear secrets, ultra secret, ultra secret. <laughs> and Michael Hayden, of all people, uh, saying, uh, agreeing on a tweet. So now we have this another problem. You have these grown men you think they're in their 60s and 70s. They'd be thoughtful, but they're tweeting and they're sounding like idiots. But I'll let you take it from there. What, what's your take on this? Yeah, well, this is what happens when you appoint a Jew to be the head of law enforcement in the in the in the United States of America. He immediately weaponizes the Justice Department. And now the Justice Department is out to get their, their enemies. There's no even-handedness here. We're, we're, we're destroying the only basis that we had really as Americans uh, to hold us together, which is the rule of law. Uh, and that's been a struggle. I mean, that we don't have a king. We don't have any common heritage. People come from all over the world. But as uh, Tom Paine said, in America, the law is king. Well, we're, with America, the law is a tyrant now. It's not a king. It's a tyrant uh, who is out to punish anyone who's in the uh, opposite political party. So this is an outrageous example of politicization of the uh, legal system. Uh, and uh, I think it blew up in their faces. I, I really think that they, they, they went way too far. They overreached on this thing. And I think that they basically uh, helped Trump and helped to galvanize uh, the Republican base in support of Trump. So it backfired. Yeah, the uh, FBI said apparently getting reports of uh, dirty bomb threats against law enforcement and the FBI. This is a press release, of course. So take that for what it's worth. They're trying to, Merrick Garland is trying to portray the FBI and his Justice Department as the victim in this. 
So they they cry they, out. Oh, they're always cry out as they strike you. Cry out as they strike you. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the attorney general cries out as he strikes you. Yeah. You know, they're always the victim. We we have to get away from bringing these people into government. There are enough Jews in the cabinet to have a minion. Mm -hmm. And and so now you've got Merrick Garland uh, weaponizing the uh, the Justice Department and attacking anybody who disagrees with the Democratic Party or the left wing of the Democratic Party. After you had Anthony Blinken create one of the biggest failures in diplomacy in American history by refusing to accede to reasonable demands that the Russians were making. Mm -hmm. And led to a war that simply that did not have to happen. And now he's going to have to they're they're going to lose. I mean, lots of people lost their lives because this man shows up and uh, feels that he's uh, he has relatives who died in the Holocaust. And so you just better shut up and do what he says. There's no there's no there's no rationality here. There's no give and take. There's no sense that the other guy may have a point. Maybe those Russians have a point. I mean, we are, after all, in Ukraine. It's not as if the Russians are in Texas, you know, mm -hmm. uh, arguing with us about uh, who has sovereignty over Texas. No, there is a reasonable case. And because he ignored the reasonableness of this case, because they prosecute their agenda until it reaches an obstacle that they cannot overcome. That's not a, a, a smart way to proceed. The smart way to proceed is to know your limits beforehand. You have uh, Logos here. Logos is reason. Reason tells you that the Russians should be able to uh, have a secure border, which means a neutral Ukraine. That could have solved the problem like that. This is It could have solved it like that, even with all of what Victoria Newland did after 2014. They spent eight years basically digging trenches and making fortifications, I'm saying the Ukrainians now, uh, to take over the Donba Donbass and basically uh, uh, ethnically cleanse the Donbass. It killed 14,000 people with their artillery strikes until the point where the Russians' patience simply wore out and they invaded. And now suddenly, oh, wait a minute, they're the villains. This is classic Jewish behavior, okay? I can give you another example. Okay, the, the stabbing of Salman Rushdie. Now, what is this all about? This is an attack on freedom of speech. This is awful. Well, wait a minute. Let's take a step back here. Why did why does why was he stabbed? I don't know, some guy, some lone guy. Who knows why he did it? Maybe we'll find out. But the fact of the matter is that Salman Rushdie wrote a book that the uh, Muslims considered blasphemous. And I think he knew that it was going to create a reaction, and he wanted to create a reaction. So what you uh, so it was the satanic verses, and then the Ayatollah Khomeini issued a fatwa against him uh, for doing that. But uh, it was the beginning of a campaign of deliberate provocation. So the next step along the road is the the uh, the Danish cartoons, Jilland mm -hmm. uh, uh, Posten, the uh, Danish magazine. Pub publishes cartoons that is deliberately calculated to outrage Muslim sensibilities. Okay, and then they do, and then there's there's violent uh, protest all throughout the Islamic world. And uh, okay, so I don't think anybody got killed at that point uh, in Denmark anyway, even though it was a, a big cr diplomatic crisis for the Danish president. 
So the next stop along the road is Charlie Hebdo. Uh, that magazine got, decides to do the same thing. Now they've got a huge uh, Muslim population in France, and uh, they got what they prayed for. Be careful what you pray for. But they got what they prayed for when two gunmen showed up and gunned down. They killed 12 people in the offices of Charlie Hebdo, and they wounded 11 people. And what does Charlie Hebdo do? They cash in on it. So they change. They have a 60,000 circulation. The next wins, next week's print run after the um, uh, the attack is a million. And then it ends up being a, five, a print run of five million cashing in on the incident that they created. And the fact that these they were it was calculated to create violence. Uh, they don't know where it's going to break out, but they were willing to offer up uh, 12 of their colleagues on the altar of journalistic uh, success, journalistic money-making, uh, knowing that there was going to be a violent reaction. This is, this is the history uh, of this, this psyop against Muslims. It's been a, one, one attack after another on their sensibilities. And when they react, they play right into the hands of the Jews who are orchestrating this. Like Al-Qaeda. Yes. Yeah, or Muslim Brotherhood. All these groups have always been controlled by Western intelligence. Yeah. yeah so, so yeah. So you, you, you create the very thing. And then, so, so the timing here is, what's the timing we're talking about? Well, it's the JCPOA. That's exactly what it is. It's the Iran nuclear agreement. And now there's a, a guy, I quote him in the article, but basically he's a journalist, a, a, a Jewish journalist, who would no one would touch him with a ten foot pole in mainstream media in England because he's he's lost lawsuit after lawsuit. The, he when was editor of the Jewish Chronicle, it went bankrupt because of all the payouts they had to make for people that they slandered. But the guy still has Jewish privilege, and so he gets to talk about this and talks about uh, it. Blurts out that the timing was perfect. <laughs> well, wait a minute, what do you mean by that? What do you mean? You mean the Iranians timed it to sabotage their own nuclear agreement? No, I think what he's really saying is that the the Israelis timed this incident, and if they didn't time it, they're certainly going to exploit it. But let's 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 take a step back here. Uh, the man's been arrested. Now he's going to be put on trial. Uh, if I were the lawyer, the first thing I'd do is uh, ask him uh, who you've been talking to. Who have you been talking to? Because he posted uh, uh, things on Facebook. Uh, do you mean to tell me that the FBI doesn't follow Facebook? Isn't that why it's there? So, so you can show your hand to the FBI? Mm -hmm. And uh, if the FBI knew about it, uh, what did they do about it? Now, the, the normal uh, modus operandi of the FBI, when they find people like this, or people that they want to take down, like white people in Michigan, is that they they show up at your door and say, yeah, we think let's let's kidnap the governor of Michigan. That's a great idea. Uh, you know, uh, I I brought you some explosives and, and uh, automatic weapons, and and while we're discussing it, let's smoke some dope. Now, this is actually what happened in the state of Michigan. Mm -hmm. uh, another entrapment plot by the FBI. Another entrapment plot in Michigan. They did this years ago, and years ago it blew up. As soon as it comes to trial, the lawyers say this was entrapment. The jury agrees, and that's the end of the trial. Now, this is something Dana 
Dana Nessel, the Jewish lesbian attorney general, she came out and bragged about the fact she was working with the FBI. Dana, we're not impressed. We know as soon as you say you're working with the FBI, it's an entrapment scheme. And that's exactly what happened to the kidnapping plot. It blew up in their faces. Now, at a certain point, how much bad publicity can the FBI afford to have? I mean, they are going out of their way to generate bad publicity. This is a rogue operation. Okay, it, it, it oper operates against the people of the United States of America. And there's a, 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 a an English uh, filmmaker who basically called it, did a documentary saying it's the number one terrorist organization in the United States of America, mm -hmm. simply because of their collaboration with these plots. They're, con they're agent provocateurs. They're constantly trying to get people to act on their uh, criminal uh, impulses. And uh, uh, I suppose the plan is to stop them right before they do it, but maybe that's not the plan. Maybe the plan is to let them go through with it because there are certain powerful people, uh, guess who, the Israelis and their uh, agents here, who do not want a nuclear agreement. It's that simple. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah, a wider, a broader, a more powerful interest at stake. And that you, you get that with the... Um... I mean, Trevor Aronson wrote a book called The Terror Factory, which actually details how the FBI keeps a stable of uh, of uh, agent provocateurs who go in and excite people to to get involved in these plots. The FBI also even suggested the assassination of, of the Virginia governor, um, too. Uh, that was another idea they had, that the FBI informant had. Um, and, of course, the history of this, there's always those questions regarding Oklahoma City. Right. Uh, well, Mer Merrick Garland was in charge of that operation. Yes, it was Pat Gone. and infiltrating an Aryan nation and supporting these, you know, you know, these, 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 these like bank robbing, drug dealing, motorcycle gangs that we FBI would use as assets. And you have, um, you know, the questions uh, swirling about the the first bombing of the World Trade Center in 1993, where the FBI agent apparently delivered a live bomb when the informant was, you know, was shocked. He actually taped it. And most people don't know that was an FBI sting operation, uh, the yeah. 93 bombing, which never yeah. was quite explained. And, of course, right. going further back into Waco and Ruby Ridge, the Bureau really – I mean, to say that this was the, like, the worst, uh, I guess, uh, uh, a violation the Bureau's committed, you know, this raid on Trump's house. Well, look at the history of the FBI. <laughs> it's hardly right. – I'm not shocked by it. Go uh, back to COINTELPRO in the, the 60s where they – uh, they send a guy in, they entrap a guy. It's either you go to jail forever or you can work with us. So uh, Bobby, whatever his name was, decided to work for the FBI, goes and signs up as a Black Panther. His skin's real dark. Okay, he must be one of us. And he uh, basically gets them to start buying guns. Buy guns. Mm -hmm. And then he informs the Chicago police that they're stockpiling guns. And then they, pour, they uh, put barbiturates in their Kool-Aid and the police bust in and they kill them all, you know, kill a bunch of people. Uh, yeah. Well, look, we don't need this. You're supposed to protect us. You're not supposed to, you're not supposed to egg unstable people on to do violent acts. Why is that part of your job description? Now I know, I know people in the FBI and they're unhappy. <laughs> I tell you, they are, they are unhappy now about the whole operation be, uh, being basically hijacked 
by the by uh, Merrick Garland and being you weaponized to be used against the American people. Mm-hmm. How long is this going to go on? And, it, and, and to conspire against a duly elected sitting president for four years. I mean, that's that's yeah. pretty strong, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, this is this is pretty uh, this is pretty outrageous. And and the, the commentators are saying, well, if, if the pr- former president can't protect himself against the FBI, what chance do we have? What chance do normal people have? Yeah, these are the regard. people that uh, America says we couldn't, we shouldn't be questioning the integrity of the FBI. It's like, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Again, you got to know your history here, don't you? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, and the whole, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it was, a, it was rotten from the beginning. I mean, J. Edgar Hoover mm-hmm. ran a huge blackmail operation uh, and uh, uh, basically was going to go after Kinsey and, until Kinsey gave him all of his material. And then he became a bigger blackmailer than Kinsey. So he he became so powerful, they had to carry him out of office in a a box. That was the only way that people could get rid of him. The Washington, the politicians could get rid of him, especially after he got Kinsey material. Mm -hmm. So uh, when is is there going to be a reckoning here? Well, it's interesting because, you know, the, again, the power of narrative is is a lot of this is done in the context of the January 6 hearings and the narrative that was there was some sort of violent insurrection that threatened the uh, the republic when it was simply a raucous protest that got out of hand in some cases, but it was mostly peaceful. Uh, they, I mean, the damages were min- minimal, uh, and now they've spun this narrative of an insurrection, and so they're trying to kind of rope this all in. You create it's almost like a fantasy they've created. I don't know if they they drinking their own Kool Aid here or they're getting higher their own supply, whether they believe it or not, it matters to them. Um, uh, but again, this is uh, yeah, just it's almost as if they've they've they're trying to get around an espionage act and insurrection and these things, and it's it, it really just it look it, it looks bad. Uh, but again, I don't think they they know bounds here any boundaries here, which is perhaps their downfall ultimately. Yeah, I mean, basically, Trump Trump couldn't control the, his own FBI, you know. So you get one guy coming in. Uh, is he powerful enough to take on people like this who are entrenched and have been entrenched for years? Uh, probably not. Probably no, not. no, no. It's the, it's the permanent state called the deep state, whatever, the bureaucracy. And there was interesting because I read the um, that there was uh, an executive order uh, uh, that was, uh, I think, canceling the Schedule F. Which was assault on sort of the the permanent bureaucracy. The uh, um, I think it's been in in, in place since um, uh, oh since early Pen- the Pendleton Act, I think, where idea was um, he could fire you know fifty to sixty thousand of these bureaucrats. It's sort of a purge, and I was impressed by it, sort of if it's Machiavellian sort of sophistication, understanding what he's up against, because any cleaning of the swamp, draining of the swamp, if you will. Would require a sort of knight of the long knives approach, um, so to speak. <laughs> Not be feckless with these people because you're dealing with Bolsheviks, right? Commissars. No, you are. You and are. So, I mean, so they don't play by the rules. So what do you do? You know. Well, well, yeah. I mean, Jimmy Carter tried to do this. Yeah. So he gets elected. He's going to a new guy in town. Uh, the church uh, committee hearings had already taken place, and they exposed the the fact that the, the CIA was involved in criminal activity. Uh, had basically been a rogue uh, institution that was under nobody's control. Uh, so Jimmy Carter fired uh, 2,000 CIA agents. Mm-hmm. Well, then George H.W. Bush comes along and, and rallies them all, <laughs> and they yes. basically depose 
they they uh or they they didn't orchestrate the hostage crisis in Tehran. Uh, I, I read the book of the late, there was a lady uh, who was the spokesman. She was raised in Philadelphia, uh, so spoke fluent English. And she was the spokesman for the thing, a student at the time. And she said, you know, we, we thought it was going to last three days. But we kept getting uh, word from the Ayatollah uh, and his people to keep it going. Well, it lasted for over 300 days. Mm-hmm. Uh, largely because George Bush paid the Ayatollah Khomeini $24 million to, to keep it going so that he could use this as a weapon to destroy Jimmy Carter. And that's exactly what happened. And uh, then Ronald Reagan was uh, elected. Mm-hmm. So it's not this here. Jimmy, I think Jimmy was a little naive and think, I mean, 2000 people. Is that a lot? Uh, is that enough? Did you get the right guys? Uh, but I think that the 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 deep the deeper question is that uh, Kennedy felt he was in the same situation that he he crossed the CIA he he basically kicked out Alan Dulles and uh, if you want my honest opinion I think that they killed him uh, to get back at him they didn't do it alone. Uh, there were other people involved. Other people had interest. The Israelis had interest because mm-hmm. Kennedy was preventing them from getting their nuclear uh, weapons, their nuclear reactor in Daimona. Lyndon Johnson certainly had a motive. And Lyndon Johnson turned out to be a complete stooge of the Jews as soon as he got um, uh, uh, elected president. Basically called the planes back when the Israelis attacked the USS Liberty. Mm-hmm. Got on the phone himself. The guy, the captain said, I'm not, I'm, I'm going in unless I hear from the commander in chief. And damn it, the commander in chief got on and told him to go back. Yeah, well, yeah, Matilda Krim sweet talked him into doing that, I guess. So, <laughs> yes, she got the uh, Congressional Medal of Honor for doing that. So, <laughs> and as I've said before, she deserved it for sleeping with Lyndon Johnson. It's just, yeah, I just look up in the ceiling and think of Israel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. but uh, yeah, yeah. Um, patriot for sure. That's for that's for sure. Um, so uh, I, yeah, I mean, part part of what we're dealing with is in, uh, warfare here. You you've already mentioned it. Insurrection is a complete category of the mind, mm-hmm. like deplorable that gets imposed on. Uh, and, uh, a situation that was not that at all. Yeah, hundreds of people are being in prison uh, just to satisfy that that narrative. Yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. now you now you've got another narrative here with the uh, the uh, the Rushdie narrative. It's freedom of speech. You know, he's a martyr for freedom of speech. Uh, but so, you know, so now unrestricted freedom of speech is a good thing. So Facebook well, and Twitter and yeah, except that I get I got banned <laughs> from Twitter. Wait a minute. So Twitter, if you if you go on to I've been banned from Twitter. Somebody sent me a link. Uh, so you, they have these hashtag hijab. If you go on there, it's hardcore pornography. Well, wait a minute. Suppose it's some little Muslim kid who yes. just wants to uh, uh, learn more about his uh, his heritage, and he's subjected to this. There's no censorship on that. <laughs> they censor me. Okay, they kicked me off my they, they censored the president of the United States of America, but yes. they don't do anything about pornography on sites that are clearly not labeled as such, clearly not labeled as such. So you can have children innocently stumbling into this type of thing 
without any uh, guardrails whatsoever. And this is known as freedom of speech. Well, that's not and, a that's not a bug. That's a feature of the system, isn't it? No, it's a feature. Of course, it is. Yeah, yeah. it's not. A, it's not an aberration. Whoops, it's done. It's sorry. done intentionally. No, it's done intentionally because they won't. They won't change it. Well, so you know, they, when when Playboy public when Playboy was publishing, you know, the the dead tree version, and Penthouse was doing that, and they mailed it out in a brown paper bag, they never ever thought of getting the hands of you know of an adolescent or a child, right? <laughs> well, it always did. Yeah, it exactly. always did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, but so that was you know collateral damage. Too bad they didn't care one way or the other about mm-hmm. that. So I mean, I just did a review of a memoir of a baby boomer. It'll be in the October issue, uh, and she talked about how her, her entire life fell apart in 1969. She's seven years younger than me, and there was that was a really significant uh, period of time. Uh, but the thing she mentioned about her father was he lost his authority basically because he subscribed to Playboy. So yeah. all these kids are watching him read these girly magazines, and he's losing his authority by doing that. Yeah, he's like uh, uh, the king uh, uh, in the Baca, isn't he? That's right. It's exactly that. Exactly that. It shows you how yeah. perceptive uh, Euripides was. Yeah. You know? The, um, uh, I was just reading this last week, uh, the actress Han Hesch succumbed uh, from what i understand to her injury she sustained in a car accident of course she she came out as a lesbian she was um uh ellen degeneres girlfriend or why i forget what, what i i look when that happened i thought this is a career move and i think i was she proved me right she she was a lesbian uh to get noticed because of her relationship with ellen degenerate mm-hmm. uh and then uh she went back. She reverted to what she was. She had children. She yeah. She in, became a straight again. But numer- it, numer- numerous, numerous, numerous uh, uh, men she slept with and had children. So it was all career moves. As far but as she I was sexually tell. abused by her bisexual father. Right. That's what I heard too. And this is where you get again. Wh- what's the source of this? The source is this, and this is the, the wages of sin. And the same way that you know. Uh, reading about her family, I just read a, just a short article I read about her family. Well, I mean, uh, any any wonder why she turned out the way she did? I mean, it's like, yeah. <laughs> well, once once, you, once again, you allow a certain group of people to do whatever they can to subvert the moral fiber of the United States of America, and if anyone objects, they're the bad person. Well, this is interesting because uh, this this is relevant to the article that you wrote in uh, this uh, in the uh, July August edition of Culture Wars, uh, this um, biography of Benedict the uh, Sixteenth, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, and uh, well, I'll let you take what what uh, what's the connection here? The connection between well, between, uh, well in the, you talk about the uh, his coming of age of course during the second world oh, war oh so okay okay so so uh what when i was giving that certain people uh, group of people uh carte blanche to subvert the morals of the country that's exactly what happened after yes. world war ii in germany and that certain group of people was was the jews the jews flocked back to germany they ran off like scared rabbits in the 1930s and they came back uh, after World War II, just lusting for revenge. Uh, and it was, uh, I, someone called me on this. It was, I said it was Herbert Hoover, uh, but it was Patton as well, who were appalled at the way the Jews were behaving. They were they stacked the, uh, the Nuremberg trial. It was all, 75% of the lawyers were Jews and they wanted revenge. They wanted revenge and the people were appalled. 
Well, okay, so they they did they dumped the Morgenthau plan, which was to starve the Germans to death, but they instituted a ruthless form of social engineering by taking over every publication in Germany in order to get anything published, whether it was a book or a magazine or a movie script, whatever. You had to have a license, and in order to get the license, you had to lie down on a couch and talk to uh, David Mordecai Levy, a Jew Jewish. Uh, psychiatrist from New York City and tell him how guilty you felt for being a German. Well, that had a devastating effect on the German people. Uh, and I think it had a devastating, because it allowed this group of people to subvert moral, the German moral sexual morality with impunity. They knew that nobody was going to be punished. This was fixed. And so over the course of the 1950s, all of these illustrated magazines all became like versions of Playboy. Uh, there were strict laws against nudity, and the Jews undermined them right and left. And the main vehicle, uh, the main break, first break, was articles on the Kinsey Report. Now, this is science. And so you have to have pictures of naked women uh, because it's scientific. And that was the thin end of the wedge, and it got worse and worse and worse to the point this day where you have this total sexual corruption uh, in Germany manifested in the synod, the German synod, which, lo and behold, announces that the German people want to overturn the uh, prohibition against abortion and homosexuality and blah, 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 the whole thing. Just completely corrupt. It got so bad, even Pope Francis had to say something about it. So that, 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 that's what's going on here. That's what's going on. You let these people in, they will wreck your culture. And now we're having to learn that in the expensive school. We learned it in the expensive school experience. And now what are we going to do about it? Are we going to continue to allow people like Merrick Garland to run our country? Anthony Blinken, all the other people? Are we going to, aren't we paying a price for this? Haven't we learned that you can't have someone who begins every conversation by saying, I have relatives who died in the Holocaust, do your negotiating for you. It's not going to work. He does not represent, these people do not represent the American people. They think the American people are their enemy because they're all anti-Semites. Yeah, um, you, in the article, you, uh, you talk about the German problem. Uh, and of course, the German problem is the sort of the blood libel of the Holocaust narrative. Germans are uniquely guilty, and it was in this environment uh, is where uh, Ratzinger to, uh, kind of come, came of age. His inability to deal with the same way that the that, that uh, John Paul II liberated the Poles uh, from going to Poland in 1979, not too long after he was uh, elected Pope, became Pope. He uh, Ratzinger went to Germany, and he didn't talk about. Germans and Jews. He talked about Islam, right? He got in some trouble there, but he wasn't right. able to liberate Germany from this. No, um, no, he couldn't do it. He, yeah. he had internalized the commands of his oppressors, so that's bad enough. But then, when he gets to Rome at the Second Vatican Council, he basically persuades everyone. He Frings. He's speaking through Frings, and Frings was a, mm -hmm. a venerable hero after World War II, defender of the German people. So it's right. He's blind. He can't see anything, he can't read anything, and Ratzinger is using him as his mouthpiece. And he basically, and they're thinking, well, think, well, if, if Frings says we should throw out Ottaviani's documents, I guess we should. And that's what happened. Ottaviani, Cardinal Ottaviani, 
uh, wrote preliminary documents that talked about the threat not only of communism, but of also American uh, psychoanalysis in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Which is and, Jews. Yeah, well, that's the common <laughs> denominator between psychoanalysis yeah. and Hollywood. So it was a veiled reference to the Jews. And I think Ratzinger got, was allergic to this type of thing. Uh, because of the way he had been raised, because of the social engineering he had been subjected to right after World War II. He was 20 years old in 1947, which is when Morgenthau tried to starve the Germans to death. So he could not know who uh, Henry Morgenthau was. He knew, every German knew, every German knew what he was trying to do. And Ratzinger, for some reason, decided that he was going to make peace with the modern world uh, because Germany had had its experiences. He didn't want to be negative. You know, Pius IX, his syllabus of errors, that's negative. These are things that he mentions explicitly mm -hmm. in his memoir about Vatican II. Came out in 1969. Uh, uh, Pope Pius X's uh, anti-modernism moves. He mentioned that too. This is too negative. We need to be positive. You know, as a journalist, I immediately get a headache whenever I think positive thoughts. So I'm, I'm, I'm naturally inclined against them. But what do you mean by being positive? Do you mean the church has nothing to fear from the modern world? That's in Gaudium et Spes. Well, they do because the, the, the enemies of the church were working overtime during the Vatican Council to make sure that they subverted it. They didn't subvert it. I have to be clear on that, okay? Because you had 2,000 bishops passing on, this, to, uh, on these documents. And so when it comes to uh, Nostra Tate, uh, the Jews wanted a statement saying the Jews did not kill Christ. That's what they were paying Malachi Martin for. And they didn't get it because you're not going to get 2,000 bishops coming together that's going to contradict what is obvious in Scripture. But they did have a statement saying, the church opposes all forms of anti-Semitism. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, so let's bring that right up to speed, right up to the state of art right now. Uh, the Jews are saying that abortion is a fundamental Jewish value. That means if you uh, restrict abortion, you're preventing Jews from practicing their religion. That means being anti-abortion means being anti-Semitic. These are all things that are direct quotes from Jews who said this over the past couple of weeks. And that means in order to be a, a, a faithful Catholic, you have to be pro-abortion. Oh, wait a minute. How did we get to this mess? How did we get to this situation? Well, it was called dialogue with the Jews. It was a disaster for the Catholic Church. Even the, the Vatican had to admit this. So now we have to dial it back a little bit, and you're going to have to begin, if you want to get anything coherent going now, you're going to have to interpret that statement in light of tradition. You know, uh, what do you mean by anti-Semitism? Well, you mean racial determinism. Obviously, that's obviously what they meant. But as it stands now, it means we have to walk lockstep when everything the ADL condemns, we have to cheer. That's, that's a disaster for the church. And I'm saying... In that review, that Rossinger paved the way for this by imposing the Holocaust narrative on the church. It was a fatal mistake. He posed it indirectly. He never used the word Holocaust, but it was basically all this type of, we have to get away from the guilty past. You know, we have to come up with something new. And of course, it would be interesting to find out, if I could, who wrote that sentence uh, about uh, opposing all forms of anti-Semitism. 
He certainly had review power over every single document because he was the eyes, literally the eyes of Cardinal Frings. Cardinal Frings couldn't read those documents. So Ratzinger had to read them for him. So that's that's the situation. That's the situ the mess we're in right now, and we're going to have to start uh, thinking our way out of it. Now, Ratzinger, because he couldn't deal with it, you, you're right. He could he should have gone to back to Munich. You know, when John Paul II went to Warsaw on his first visit after becoming pope, he talked about communism and materialism. Well, that was obviously the problem. So Ratzinger going back to Munich and talking about Islam is like Pope John Paul II going to Warsaw and talking about the threat of Mormonism or something like that uh, in, you know, Poland. He should have done it. He could have done it. He had he had. He had routinely was pulling a million to two million people every place he showed up. That was the legacy of John Paul II. He inherited that, and he could have used it to basically defend the German people. That's his first responsibility. It was certainly Pope John Paul II's first responsibility to defend the Poles. He should have done the same thing with the Germans, and Cardinal George said that's told a friend of mine that that's why he was chosen, to deal with the German issue which is basically, no, you're not uh, racked. You shouldn't be racked with guilt because your grandfather was a conductor on a train that went within 15 miles of Auschwitz. That's no reason to feel guilty. Guilt is, comes from sin that you commit. It's not imposed on you uh, by other people. But he didn't do it. And so because he didn't kill the Holocaust, the Holocaust killed him. And I'm talking about the Williamson affair. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is basically uh, Bishop Williamson, the uh, bishop, one of the bishops consecrated by Archbishop Lefebvre, and therefore excommunicated uh, for schism, for a schismatic act, uh, was being interviewed by a Swedish TV operation. Uh, it's this is from Bishop Williamson told me this personally. Uh, they it looks as if it's over. Uh, they're packing up their cameras, and suddenly the guy says, oh, by the way, how many people died in the Holocaust? <laughs> and Williamson— Just, just as, a, as a side. <laughs> by the way, now that I, now that I got you here. Um, and he, he stupidly—I uh, hope he's not offended by that, but it was a dumb thing to do. You're in Bavaria. You should know that it's against the law to question this. He says, I think it was 300,000 people. Now, he's certainly entitled to his opinion. He shouldn't be punished for yes, that. He's an occupied Germany. <laughs> he's an occupied Germany. And so this, so they, they, the Swedish team basically puts it in the can and mm -hmm. they wait and they wait and they spring the trap when Pope Benedict announces the lifting of the excommunication of the four bishops, including Bishop Williamson. And at that point, every headline in Europe screams, Pope Benedict admits a Holocaust denier into the church. Now is, I'm sorry, is Holocaust, is the Holocaust narrative part of Catholic doctrine? No, <laughs> uh, no. This, so is, this, this so, is exactly what Father Lombardi, the worst press secretary in the history of mm -hmm. the Catholic church, made St. Peter look as eloquent as, uh, uh, eloquent as Democritus by comparison. By the way, the narrative changes. So, of course, it does. So, <laughs> it has Hol changed. Hol Holocaust means burnt whole. Yeah, and one of the 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 book that Ailey Wiesel wrote, Night, has 
Nazis throwing babies in flaming pits. Mm -hmm. Okay, now that there's visual proof they had uh, planes flying over Auschwitz. There's no, there were no flaming pits. No. We know that for a fact. He made it up. He made it up. Uh, but it, at least it conforms to the idea of Holocaust, mm -hmm. which is uh, which means bird hole. It, it was re it, what really we're talking about is the firebombing of Dresden. Where yeah, that's, that, that's a Holocaust. <laughs> that really was a Holocaust. Yeah. And this was the guilt uh, incurred from that that basically led the mo provided the motivation for the Americans to get behind this thing. But the narrative changed uh, to basically gassing. Mm -hmm. uh, as the way that they were killed. And that led to all kinds of problems, led to trials in Canada. And so by 1993, this is the year Schindler's List came out. And uh, you watch the movie, it got all those naked Jewish ladies there, but they're getting showers in warm water. Mm -hmm. So Steven Spielberg's a Holocaust denier. That's Holocaust denial to say, to say that. And that same year, 1993, is the year that Debbie Lipstadt came up with the idea, a book about Holocaust denial, and that was put into law in Germany. So Bishop Williamson broke the law, and at that point, the church is, well, what do we say now? Well, well, no, we don't, we're, we're not denying the Holocaust. No, you fell right into the trap. What they should have said is basically uh, the church has no uh, the infallible magisterium of the Catholic Church has nothing to say about how many people who died during World War II or how they died. Next question. So mm -hmm. we're not, this is not a, this is not a category of reality. It's a category that was created by Debbie Lipstadt because the, the Jews could no longer defend their narrative. Even Spielberg couldn't do it. And so once you can't defend it, you have to make it a criminal, uh, criminal offense. And that's exactly what they did. And the church fell into it, fell into the trap, and that wrecked the papacy of well, Pope Benedict XVI. He never recovered, never recovered. And, of course, the Holocaust narrative itself has sort of tied the church's hands in dealing, engaging constructively in the, in the culture war because they cannot, like I said, because if all forms of Semitism is condemned, and anti-Semitism, anti rather, um, and if anti-Semitism is defined as mere criticism of Jewish influence or power, uh, then philo-Semitism is effectively the uh, the law. And right. So, um, right. This is this is the crucial issue right now. Is going to be these battles in every state house across the country about whether they the, the states have the power can restrict abortion. Mm -hmm. Now, now the Catholic Church has always been the leader in this regard. But what is the church going to say when when some Jewish lady says to him, well, abortion is a fundamental Jewish value. And if you restrict abortion, you're being anti-Semitic. How is the church going to deal with that? Did you see the latest Atlantic article about the rosary? Yes, I did see that. Who owns, the, that. Who's, who owns the Atlantic? It's a Jew. The Jews took over the Atlantic. It's a okay, Jewish so magazine. So they're in, well, it's a columning and insulting all Catholics because you say it's a weapon of spiritual warfare. It's always been interpreted as that, but it's never been used as violence. It's almost like that Tarzan movie where where the Catholics are going to be strangling people mm -hmm. with their rosaries. I'm like, mm -hmm. but I'm saying there's no uh, again, we there is no consideration for Catholic or Christian or you know sensibilities of the goyim. But afterward, no. have to be always have to be on guard of offending Jewish sensibilities. Now. Obviously, who's in control here? There's a um, a law recently passed in Canada that holds a penalty up to two years in prison 
for downplaying or denying the Holocaust narrative. This is always a form of tyranny. This now, we we yeah. know what Justin Trudeau wants to do. He wants to shut up everyone, and the best way to shut up everyone is to call anybody who disagrees with him an anti-Semite. That's what they did with the trucker protest. Yeah. Honk honk is high Hitler. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And well, let me lady, ask you. Let me ask you a question. A little mental exercise here. What if Canada or any government were to pass a law carrying a two-year prison sentence for anyone denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ? That would, is, would that be construed as anti-Semitic? No, we're 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 <laughs> we're in exactly that position. Not yes. that that's a reductio ad absurdum. Yeah. But the abortion issue is exactly that. Mm -hmm. It's exactly that. They are saying if you restrict abortion, you are imposing the Christian religion on the Jews. Now wait a minute. What you're really saying? Let me decode that for you. What you're really saying is with Roe versus Wade, you impose the Jewish religion on everyone in the United States of America. Mm -hmm. Because it is absolutely clear now, what do these Jews worship? Who do these Jews worship? Do they worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? No, they do not. They, do, they worship Moloch. Jews are Moloch worshipers. And, this, and 140 Jewish organizations made that perfectly clear when they came out and said abortion is a fundamental Jewish value. If you say that, you are worshiping Moloch. I don't care who you say you're worshiping. That's who you're worshiping. Now, how are we supposed to have dialogue with Moloch worshipers? How is the Catholic Church going to deal with this now that they painted themselves into the corner with this ridiculous Catholic Jewish dialogue for over 50 years that even the Vatican has said has failed? The rationale for that dialogue was that we could both work together for social justice, we Catholics and Jews. Well, that's a joke. That's a complete joke because you don't understand who you're talking to. What do you think Tikkun Olam is? Healing the world. It means overthrowing every aspect of the moral order because Jews don't like it. Well, as you can, it was sort of demonstrated with uh, in Florida when uh, Governor DeSantis fired uh, that uh, Warren, the prosecutor down there. Right. And he, he uh, for not following the law, uh, you know, uh, not enforcing laws against abortion, letting rioters out of prison, rioters of the right political persuasion out of prison. And he, he said he came out publicly said that his Jewish identity shaped his government service, his politics. Now, suppose but, a Catholic had said that. Mm hmm. Well, Catholics, I mean, are, Catholics are accused of that all the time. It's like, that's right. This, you know. this was like so this was the rap against Al Smith. Remember the famous line of Al Smith when he lost? He said, tell the Pope to unpack his bags. <laughs> well, more recently, Amy Coney Barrett, when she was being, right. uh, I think, the Court of Appeals, I think. And it was uh, 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 Dianne Feinstein, the, the Jewish <laughs> senator from California, started talking about dogma. Catholic, it was, yeah, does Catholic dogma. dogma affect your jurisprudence? I was like, well, did you ask you would go to Ginsburg or Breyer if the Talmud affected their jurisprudence? I mean, yeah. uh, I think you're, you're hitting that there's a double standard here, aren't you? <laughs> I'm suggesting that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's um. Well, I'm suggesting that if that is indeed the case, that they can't uh, uh, suppress their Jewish identity, uh, you know, then maybe they shouldn't be allowed in those positions. I'm just saying. That's the obvious. Look, how many times do we have to say this? You got Merrick Garland, 
attacking the president. You got Anthony Blinken leading the country into another mm -hmm. Jewish war. You've got uh, the 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 uh, 140 Jewish organizations uh, claiming that uh, uh, <coughs> you can't impose you're imposing your religion if you restrict abortion. You got this Jewish Attorney General in Florida who says he's not going to follow the law. How many examples do we need before we realize you can't appoint these people to public office? They're incapable of serving the public good, incapable, because they have a superior, they think they, have, they are superior, they are above the law, they follow a higher law, it's tikkun olam, which is basically the subversion of everything you hold sacred. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember, what was the old ad for, uh, uh, what was the hot dogs, <laughs> Hebrew? They said we follow a higher law with <laughs> the old commercial. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hebrew national hot dogs. We follow a higher law. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I guess above the above and beyond the Food and Drug Administration. Um the uh yeah, it's uh I mean it's a little it's getting a little obvious now. Um now there's Something made me think when I read your article uh, regarding Ratzinger and Germany and the psychological warfare the Germans were subjected to, the imposition of the Holocaust narrative. I don't, we don't have to get into that. The problems of the narrative and you know the deconstruction that's been that's occurred past 30 years with the Germar Rudolph you have an article covering that in the, in the recent uh, cultural I, I uh, encourage you to go get subscribe and read it it's a very good article about Auschwitz the angel of Auschwitz this doctor that actually worked to save lives it's a it, it's a, an amazing article actually but um the um the idea of of anti-fascism and anti-Semit or um, anti-racism, these are doctrines that are that are inherently they're you can call them anti-white, anti-Christian, but it's a weapon. Um, I, I was I saw a news account today. I think in Minneapolis there was a decision said uh, the union struck agreement with the county that if there's any layoffs occurring, white people can be laid off first. <laughs> Right, you know, uh, violations of civil rights laws. I, I, now I wonder if Merrick Garland's Justice Department is going to investigate Minneapolis for violating civil rights. You know, um, don't don't hold your breath. No, I'm not holding my breath. But I, 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 I was reading um, an, an article by Paul Godfrey. He he, he wrote a book anti-fascism. He has some pretty good insights. He talks about the Frankfurt School and the authoritarian personality. We're familiar with that. The authoritarian personality. Pretty much said that any like normal, healthy upbringing produces fascist, more or less. To boil it down to that, you know, strong father figure, uh, nurturing mother, uh, uh, stable family, it, it, it creates an authoritarian personality. So this that's the authoritarian personality yeah. thesis. It was created yeah. by the American Jewish Committee, basically with Jewish academics that they brought over after World War II. Mm -hmm. Well, what I'm getting at uh, by, is by by the way, if the reason I ended up writing the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit mm -hmm. is because of Paul Gottfried, because of a conversation I had with him in Tom Fleming's living room mm -hmm. years and years ago, where he just complained about why don't you criticize Jews? He was upset. <laughs> why, really? you're, all, you're, you're all a bunch of pussies. Why don't you criticize Jews? Uh he was uh angry at the neocons because they prevented him from getting a chair at Catholic University. Uh, but so I took it. To, I took to heart what he said, and I ended up gave him that speech at the National Press Club at the San Francis Memorial. I sent him a copy of the speech beforehand. He's there. <laughs> he walks up to me as, after I give the speech, and people are screaming, <laughs> Taki screaming, "We're all going to be arrested." He said to me, <laughs> "He said to me, I can't believe you gave that speech." But I thought, 
Paul, you're the one who put the idea in my head. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. know. But his idea is anti-fascism is is the idea that anyone who uh, who who uh, 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 ascribes to traditional beliefs, traditional morality, they're inherently racist and fascist. So we're all fascists. We're all Nazis in the, in the eyes of these people. Well, he he became the mentor of Richard Spencer. So I think he's endorsing. A, I think he endorsed a kind of racism. Uh-huh. I think he says, "Yeah, they're right." No, we're not. That's not right. No, that's not right. But I mean, it seems that he's uh, has has Paul internalized the commands of his oppressors here? I don't know. This is deep. Uh, it's too deep to unravel. But don't you think uh, when, he, when, when I mean, uh, Jews will claim they're white when it suits them, and then they say it's not white when it doesn't suit them. Right. Absolutely. John, John Stewart. I heard him one admit that he says that he he, he infiltrates white people's organizations. So, really, yeah. John? So you're not white? <laughs> no. But um, he's doing a show about white people. How bad the problems of white people? I was like, boy, that's this is really presumptuous, John. Um, but um. The idea that what they really mean is white is is, is sort of a vestige of, of of Christian and Catholic, you know the idea that one one at one time Europe was the faith, the faith was Europe, and of course you had the Reformation, and that's that sort of reverberates throughout history in Europe. It shattered Europe's unity, but nevertheless there is an antipathy, antipathy or hatred towards Europe uh, by the part of, by the, by the Jewish collective. This is why right. Freud saw himself as waging war against Rome, Rome right. Catholicism. So there is these, you've all these. I mean, you talk about this in the Jewish Revolution spirit. This reverberates throughout history in different forms, like Freudianism, the psychoanalysis, or it's it's uh, jazz music. This revolutionary spirit that, that affects everything, entertainment, the idea to, to sort of the um, disparage and also corrupt, you know, with the use of pornography and these things. Um, but um, the idea is, is what they call white, really, is pretty just what used to be considered, you know, Europe and Christian now. You know, like you say, that a lot of the white boys are, are – Protestants don't go to church anymore, you know. Um, so this is kind of what they're waging war on, which is why Merrick Garland comes out and says we have to uh, be on the lookout for you know domestic white terrorists, providing no evidence, of course. Right. And then all the well, white well, terrorists well, are like baby boomer Trump supporters. Yeah, the the white ter- the white supremacists in uh, St. Louis were all praying the rosary. Yes. It was a classic example. This is identity theft. Yes. This is identity theft because what you're talking about is white supremacy to fill out the full statement. Every white person is a white supremacist and white supremacist is a racial ideology. And that's uh, they're Nazis, too. So it all goes mm-hmm. back to the Holocaust. Yes. You, you have to have the Holocaust narrative here in order to uh, complete the circle here. But the psychological warfare that was there to demoralize and decapitate psychologically the German people, we now see it applied to the, Amer- to, to, to the American people. Right, Heritage and that, America, the, the yeah. problem, the crucial uh, play, the crucial nexus here is education, and the the conservatives simply were fell asleep; uh, they were asleep at the switch. And I'm talking about the the early '90s, uh, basically when that book Tenured Radicals came out. Even he couldn't identify. He kept talking about Marxists and things like that. Yes, these are not Marxists. That's a, that's an obsolete form of uh, revolutionary activity. So it's like saying, you know, we have to worry about the, the Amish because they're Anabaptists. Well, no, look, the Anabaptists were the cutting edge of revolution at the first half of the 16th century in Germany, but they're not anymore. And so they, they couldn't really identify the, the enemy. And the only reason I wrote 
the Jewish revolutionary spirit was to show that this is a constant strain and all the other things are just temporal manifestations of the Jewish revolutionary spirit. Yeah. The classic example being Irving Kristol. He's a Trotskyite in the 1930s and he's a, uh, a neoconservative in the 1980s, 90s, but he's always a Jew uh, pursuing the Jewish revolutionary spirit. That's yeah. yeah. And we see that uh, most recently, of course, uh, with the critical race theory, which inspired a lot of protests, like in Loudoun County. Then you have the Commissar Merrick Garland calling the the people in Loudoun County they're terrorists and they're mostly white. And so, you know, right. Uh, same thing with the sixteen nineteen project. Um, that's the New York Times promoting that. CRT, uh, well, the same groups promoting that, right? C CRT is Jewish. Yes. CRT, the, the, the big the big guy was Noel Ignatieff. He was a Jew who taught at Harvard. All of this type of stuff, the Minneapolis thing, that union agreement, is all pure cr critical race theory, and it's all Jewish. Yeah, Noel Ignatieff, who said that uh, rice, uh, sorry, racism and oppression cannot be uh, separated from whiteness. What, what do you mean? Is it DNA? <laughs> Uh, he said where have it, I heard he... where have I heard this before? Is this what is this what Hitler felt? Yeah, uh, this, wasn't this Hitler's idea yeah. that you're condemned, you're determined by your biology, by your DNA? This is preposterous. Uh, uh, the only reason people take this seriously is because a Jew said it. Yeah, and he was a tenured uh, was it Harvard? Harvard, of course it tenured, was, which so is, he, which so is a Jewish a Jewish university. When my son was at Harvard uh, in the early 90s, there was debate about how many Jews were there. Well, they don't have that debate because they've taken over completely. So we're talking about like – like I was listening to the Fox News thing on, on the um, on the Rosary thing with Atlantic Magazine, and the young lady on there says this is authoritarian radicals. <laughs> no, no, it's secularizing activists. Secularizing <laughs> activists, yeah. That's right. <laughs> Um, uh, so we have CRT 1619 Project. Of course, these are all Jewish projects. And of course, Noah Ignatiev, a critical race theory, you know, targeting at whites. Uh, and you also, um, I just mentioned you off call that uh, there's been some places where, uh, recently what's occurring at some of the monuments, like, like Monticello or Montepillier or Jimmy Madison's home, how it's become sort of a, um, a white guilt uh, museum tour about racism and how bad these men were, the founding fathers were. I'm willing to criticize or indulge criticisms of our founding fathers and the Enlightenment and all that stuff. That's fine, but it's you go there and just a it's a white guilt trip now, and it turns out I look at well look who's funding this David Rubenstein. Yeah, the head of, <laughs> the head of the Carlisle Group. Yes, he, he and, apparently has a fascination with Monticello. He apparently built his own house. He built or uh, he's yeah. living in a, a, a mock up of uh, Monticello. So I, I, there's always this, what is this, this desire to uh, drag down people that you, that you, you, you don't like because they're superior and you know they're superior to you. You're just some money-grubbing usurer and uh, you're going to try and run down Thomas Jefferson mm -hmm. because you just don't have what he had. Is that what's going on here? Mm-hmm. And also, just again to demoralize, uh, well, white Americans. You know, maybe yes. they because so the the yeah. crucial place is the educational system. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of people. I think psych. I read something about psychiatrists are now dealing with young girls uh, who are involved in gender dysphoria, largely because of white guilt. 
they've been they've been so demonized that uh, uh, that they feel they have to change their gender to escape from this uh, horrible biological determinism, this part of their genes making them white. If you if you're transgendered, one thing that Pete Buttigieg understood very clearly was. If he weren't a homosexual, he'd just be this loser mayor from a loser town in South in Indiana that nobody would ever heard of. Yeah. Once he once he became came out as a homosexual, he had homosexual privilege, uh, and he was immune. He's no longer white. He's not white because he's a homosexual. Yeah, and blacks and homosexuals are empowered by Jewish power too. Right. You can you can uh, you can delegate uh, Jewish privilege, and two of the Groups that have been delegated are blacks and homosexuals. Mm -hmm. As long well, as you go along, as long as you go along. If you get uppity like C Clarence Thomas, you're not really black. No, you're He's no not longer really black. black. Yeah. Well, to be honest with you, he isn't black. He's Catholic. <laughs> his, it wasn't his DNA that wrote that decision about uh, substantive due process and the objecting to it. It was the fact that he's a Catholic, and this reinforces my my idea all along which is the triple melting pot, which is uh, ethnic identity is Catholic, Protestant, Jew in this country, not black and white. Yeah, and, and where we are as a country now, we're in suburbia, is all part of social engineering. I think as someone once said, the, uh, the invisible hand didn't build the interstate highway system. <laughs> you know, and, and now they're trying to unravel that. How do you, how do you walk all that back, you know? But um, so well, you have to have immunity. You have to have privilege in order to say anything. Mm -hmm. And so, how do you get privilege by joining one of the privileged groups? And uh, obviously, Pete can't change the color of his skin, but he can declare that he's a homosexual, and he automatically has Jewish privilege as soon as he comes out as a homosexual. So nobody can criticize him. Yeah, and of course, wasn't his father at Notre Dame? He was the had the papers on what's his name, the founder of Culture Marxism, Gram Gramsci, Antonio yeah, Gramsci, he, yeah, yeah, he was uh, Joe Buttigieg, uh, did publish nothing, but he edited Gramsci's journals, and Gramsci's journals are basically it's a Marxist who's been put in, thrown in jail in Mussolini's Italy, and he writes about how you can take over a, a conservative society like Italy or Notre Dame University uh, by controlling the culture rather than the means of production. This is a crucial change in Marxist theory. And uh, Joe Buttigieg was instrumental in doing that. And uh, Pete, uh, Pete, as I said before, he lived three houses down. I had five children of various ages, uh, a little bit older, a little bit younger than him. We never saw him. He was the classic kitchen window child, but he spent a lot of time sitting at the dinner table listening to his father and all the uh, cultural revolutionaries at Notre Dame plot about how to take over the university, which Joe did. He ended up having an endowed chair and wrote absolutely zero, no books, nothing. The only book in the Notre Dame library is his warmed over doctoral dissertation, which is classic modernism and the antithesis of everything he taught as a, uh, and a postmodernist. Mm -hmm. I guess it rubbed off on his son, didn't it? He, sir, Pete has this ambivalent, relationship with his father and the fact that he's a homosexual means he has father problems yeah because your father deprivation is the cause of homosexuality but on the other hand his father taught him everything he knew about being a machiavelli and, and and scheming your way to the top of any organization so that's that he's a uh, a subject for uh, a large uh, psychoanalytic 
treatise. And now he's as a transportation secretary, he's busy talking about racist roads now, right? <laughs> Uh, again, again, it's analogous to the Jews. Uh, if you have a homosexual who is your transportation secretary, he's going to talk about himself uh, because he can't break out of that narcissistic bubble that he lives in. And so uh, you're going to have uh, airlines are always uh, the planes can't fly on time, supply chain problems. But he's uh, attacking uh, Indiana because of its abortion law and he's attacking uh, who was it? Uh, the uh, Clarence Thomas, something about homosexuals. He's attacking. It's all, all. That's all he's about, justifying his homosexuality in front of a large audience. Well, I usually have you for an hour, and I've cheated, so I'm gonna let you go for that. Shame on you! Shame <laughs> on you! The article in this uh, uh, um, month, or just July and August edition. Is Ratzinger and the German Problem? It's a review of a uh, of Peter Seewald's uh, uh, biography, Benedict the Sixteenth. Um, get it in this uh, uh, month's issue of Culture Wars. There's also a number of great articles in there. One uh, interesting article about Auschwitz, the uh, a doctor there, the Angel of Auschwitz. I it also covers Germar Rudolph and his research regarding Auschwitz. And some people, most people are familiar with, at least most people listening to this program are familiar with the controversy of Germar Rudolph. And Chris will get that. Of course, your book now can be ordered from Culture Wars. Right. Uh, the Dangers of Beauty, the Conflict Between Mimesis and Concupiscence in the Fine Arts. So, yes. Uh, CultureWars.com, right? CultureWars.com, FidelityPress.org. Both, it's available at both sites. Excellent. Well, thank you for coming back on the show. I'll post this soon. Thank you, Tim. Always a pleasure to talk to you. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Good, good night, then. Bye-bye. Good night. A grand old painter died last night His paintings on the wall Before he went He bade us well And said good night to us all A drink to me Drink to my hand you know I can't drink anymore Drink to me, drink to my health You know I can't drink anymore Three o'clock in the morning I'm getting ready for bed It came with that warning I'll be waiting for you, baby I'll be waiting for you there So drink to me, drink to my health You know I can't drink anymore Drink to me, drink to my health You know I can't drink anymore so drink to me, drink to my health You know I can't drink anymore Oh, yeah Drink to me, drink to my health You know I can't drink anymore
three o'clock in the morning I'm getting ready for bed Oh, it came without a warning But I'll be waiting for you, baby I'll be waiting for you there Drink to me, drink to my health You know I can't drink anymore But drink to me, drink to my health You know I can't drink anymore A grand old painter died last night His paintings on the wall Before he went, he bade us well And said goodnight to us all Here's what he said Drink to me, drink to my health You know I can't drink anymore Drink to me, drink to my health You know I can't drink anymore 